were looking at triple-digit increases in crime. There was a shooting, stabbing, a rape, an assault happening. In one of the hotbeds of America's homelessness crisis. We've really seen a rise in meth, and that really makes people violent. It's not as simple as giving someone a home. It's much deeper rooted than that. In this episode, I sit down with Soledad Ursua, a local resident of Venice Beach and an elected board member of the Venice Neighborhood Council. The policies that are set forth, all they do is guarantee that people who are living on our streets are going to die on our streets. This is American Thought Leaders, and I'm Yanya Kellick. Soledad Ursua, such a pleasure to have you on American Thought Leaders. Thank you, and thank you for visiting. Well, it's, it's incredible to be here in Venice Beach. And tell me a little bit about how things, how did you get here? How did you start thinking about these, these issues? You know, Venice Beach, this has been my home for the past six years. And today we have 2,000 unsheltered homeless individuals living on our streets. We're only a three and a half square mile neighborhood. So we are now second to Skid Row for the number of unsheltered homeless individuals. So it's been just over the past few years, just a huge wake up call. You know, you can't just go out on our streets and see this kind of, you know, just pain and suffering and then forget about it. It's in your face all the time. Um, it's not something that you can just let go of. And just over the past four years, you know, I've really seen it explode to the condition that it's in today. When we were just outside earlier today, you know, going through the neighborhood, um, I really got a sense that, you know, you really care about these people and you realize that they're not somehow getting the help they need, right? T t explain to me how you came to that realization. Well, it's because we live among them. You know, in Venice Beach, we're living side by side with them. So the experts keep saying that it's not drug addiction, it's not mental illness, that it's a housing crisis. But we see it every day with our own eyes. When you see somebody who is passed out in their vomit or someone who is covered in feces and urine and there's needles and there's filth on the streets, that's not poverty, that's mental illness and that's drug addiction and it's very violent. And we see the same people on our streets who, you know, they're there for months, you see them deteriorate and it's just awful. You know, we've seen people who are missing limbs. The conditions are just so unreal. And our elected officials just throw their hands up and they say, there's nothing we can do. We need to build permanent supportive housing. They're just, they're really underestimating who they're supposed to be helping. I don't think they have any clue what they're doing. So in January, 2021, LA County Department of Public Health put out a report about the top causes of death among people experiencing homelessness. The number one cause of death was alcohol and drug overdose. The number two cause of death was coronary heart disease. But what we see is that they're very much related. You see coronary heart disease in older homeless individuals who have been using drugs for a long time. So really the number one and number two cause of death are drugs. The number three cause of death is transportation related. That is a homeless individual walking out onto the street and being hit by a bus or a bike. That's an incredibly tragic situation. The number four cause of death is homicide and the five cause of death is suicide. So look at these causes of death. We see that really number one and number two is drug related and alcohol related. That's overdose. Number three, transportation. You know, what that tells me is that we need to get people off of the streets right now. Everything that we are doing today is leading towards these causes of death. 
And just imagine what it's like to be one of these homeless individuals who is suffering from mental illness. This is the most traumatic circumstances that we could be putting them in. Compared with the general population, a person experiencing homelessness is 35.1 times more likely to die from drug or, or alcohol overdose. That's an unbelievable statistic. There's people on the streets who are a danger to themselves and they're a danger to others. And what I've learned is that drug addiction is very violent. You can't just wake up one day and decide that you're going to get off drugs. It just doesn't work that way. Um, what's really needed is a serious intervention. And we just keep thinking that it's simply it will be housing that fixes it and it's not. You know, you arrived, like you said, six years ago, but things were quite different then. I mean, you obviously didn't move here because you thought there was a huge homelessness epidemic. You weren't a homelessness activist then. So give me a little bit of a sense. Maybe there's a few moments that you remember that actually spurred you into action. So Venice Beach has always been sort of on the fringe. It's a very bohemian like community. It's always been a little bit gritty. Um, you know, it's not Santa Monica. And that's what I loved about it. It was very edgy. And so there's always homeless people there. Um, but really what we've seen is just, it's the drugs that have really changed the landscape. And starting about four years ago, it's just the type of individual living on the street just changed. We've really seen a rise in meth, and that really makes people violent. So we're seeing a lot of violence play out on the streets. So about four years ago, we started to see just a different type of homeless person on the street. And then it's just, it's really metastasized during COVID. And that started in March, 2020. And the reason for that is because in order to slow the spread of COVID, the, you know, the city of LA decided to either fully or partially suspend many of their municipal codes. So prior to COVID, we had rules where tents had to be down during the day. Um, in order for people to, sh to shelter in place, they decided that that no longer had to happen. So that's where you really see more of the tents exploding. Um, also, we used to enforce no tents or no camping in public spaces. So that's the boardwalk, which is a beach, state beach. Um, so they stopped enforcing just no camping laws. And then other laws were that you're not able to sleep in your car on public streets. And so that's why you see so many RVs today because any, any vehicle that's used as a domicile purpose is allowed to stay on our streets. And so you've seen this emergence in, of tents, of camping and RVs on the streets just because of the, co the COVID loopholes. So, you know, there's a whole group of you here in Venice, and I've met some of them that are working on this together. And so how did that all come about? Well, we're very concerned with crime, and most Venice residents are. It's very dangerous to walk down the street at night, even during the day. Um, I think the average resident really feels, you know, frightened at all times. You saw a lot of, you know, some potentially dangerous situations today. And so naturally we work together. Um, we work together to demand accountability from our council member. There's serious changes that we want. Um, you know, our police were defunded here in Los Angeles. So we've had to fight really hard to get 
our police restaffed, especially in the Pacific Division, where we have you know some of the highest crime rates. We want to keep everyone safe, even the homeless. When you look at homeless on homeless crime, uh, 50, it's 56% of crimes, all assault with the deadly weapons, either the victim, the perpetrator, or both are homeless. So even you know there's even homeless on homeless crime, and so we need the police to really protect everyone. And one of the people that you. Uh I guess are working with you had actually noticed that their home was burglarized and mm -hmm. that's how you connected that's a I guess unexpected way to yeah. make a friend right my neighbor had just moved in and she wasn't there that day but I saw two men hop her fence and start burglarizing the place so I called 911 and I stayed there you know until the police arrived I made the report I had never met her yet so the following day she found out from one neighbor that she knew and she was very thankful that I was there to do that and she got in touch with me and and so now we're very close and I, I find that that's how I end up meeting people in Venice I've reported burglaries multiple times and then I end up meeting the owner of that home and so we have very few resources in Venice I feel that we often have to stick together you know this is one of the most affluent neighborhoods in America, I mean, for sure, right? How, how can you say you don't have resources? Well, first, our police were defunded, so we have, you know, much less access to them. When we call LAPD, there's very few things that they will respond to now. What used to be a crime has now been uh, downgraded to a quality of life issue. Explain that. So if you see a man swinging a bat around or an axe, you may call um, LAPD and they may not respond. If you see someone who is screaming violently, that's a quality of life issue. Uh, someone who's defecating on the street, someone who's using drugs out in the open, those are all quality of life issues now. So in the absence of, you know, basically police enforcing laws, you can get a different kind of justice. It's called street justice. Uh, street justice happens when there's a dispute over selling drugs. Uh, sometimes people will slash each other's tents. They'll set their tents on fire. Um, sometimes that happens with RVs. There's only so much limited space. And so sometimes people will retaliate against each other. We've also seen many horrific fights on the boardwalk. Um, fist fights using bats, uh, you know, pieces of debris. They're very violent and you can see there's, there's gang fights where, you know, someone will get jumped very badly by as many as six individuals. Uh, there's women being beaten uh, during the daylight. This was happening a lot and maybe this person was her pimp, but you just saw extreme levels of violence happening day and night. I read your article uh, in City Journal, Squalor by the Seaside. You were talking about this kind of profit motive, right, or potential profit motive in, in the system and what that, that, that actually helps perpetuate this reality. So tell me about that. What we saw was on the Venice boardwalk, a crisis had really ensued and that's because our police were told to stand down and not to enforce the laws. And so we ended up in a situation where we had 200 tents on the boardwalk. We were looking at triple-digit increases in crime. Um, there was a shooting, stabbing, a rape, an assault happening at least once a day, uh, sometimes more. Fires, uh, we lost a commercial building on the boardwalk. Uh, you know, um, so we're, there's fires all over the neighborhood. So we get to a point where it is just this huge crisis. And then our council member has to step in and he requested $5 million. 
Um, all of the money went to outreach, that's what we're told. So that amounts to about $25,000 per person to put them into uh, a hotel room, which is paid for by the state. And so that's what the model that uh, our council member used. And now what's happening is when we looked at Westchester Park, it's the same game plan where we see a crisis reach a breaking point, where we see laws not being enforced, and now our council member has gone back and asked for $1.1 million to do the same thing. So there's real potential here for, you know, you let, you let one area get out of control, and then you have to ask for money to fix it and remediate the problem. So, and who gets the money? I mean, how does that work? A lot of these contracts for outreach, they're no-bid contracts, and they're given to select service providers. The system is set up so that a bad player could really take advantage of it. A bad player could really take advantage of taxpayer resources. So this, you know, you're, you're saying this isn't uh, housing issues. Why is that being so misunderstood in your mind? I think there's two reasons. Um, one is probably it's just a lot easier to look at people and call them homeless because that just means they need a house, so it's a quick check. Um, another is probably for profit reasons. When you look at our elected officials, they're pushing the most expensive solutions. If we wanted to house everyone right now, we could, and we could do it very, very cheaply, and we could provide you know, an overnight, uh, just temporary resources, but we don't do that. We're choosing the most expensive options, and that's because it's very lucrative. This is a multi-billion dollar industry, and homelessness is very profitable, and there's a lot of people out there who are making millions off of this crisis. And you told me that you, know, you've, you saw some pretty significant red flags. So tell me about what some of these red flags were, and presumably this contributed to your you know, sort of squalor by the seaside picture that you're painting. Well, controller Ron Galpern put out an amazing audit on Prop HHH. And it showed that... What is Prop HHH? This was raised to create permanent supportive housing. Okay. Uh, and so it's a LA City measure. And what we found was that 30 to 60% of the costs went to soft costs. So those are your consultants, uh, you know, your architects, engineers, professional costs. So the money wasn't going to housing. And that's a huge red flag. Your soft costs shouldn't really be more than 10%. Mm -hmm. So there's something really wrong with these deals. Um, additionally, we had estimated that you know, the cost per unit would be around 300,000, 500,000. Um, we're looking at you know, projects where they're costing $900,000 now. And that's just incredible because these are about 450 square foot units. So we're building with this incredible price tag where, you know, and a lot of the deals aren't even including the cost of the land. So one project here in Venice, um, they're building at about 1.1 million per unit. And it's just at that rate, we will never be able to house people because it's just too expensive. So wait, a unit is for how many people? One person. So you're telling me that they're building $1.1 million units to house a single person that's currently on the street, most likely because of drugs. That's correct, it's absurd. I mean, it's almost hard to believe. You obviously have a different solution here though. Well, there are many low cost and highly effective solutions. Um, one is share housing. 
And what that does is it gets people off the streets to share housing together, to share a room. And that's actually very effective because when you get people to share a room, there's a less likelihood of that person self-isolating and using drugs. So it's almost, it's exactly like having a roommate where you can look out for someone, there's a sense of community. Uh, the operators of this find that it's much, it's much more successful to have people, it's almost like a buddy system for them. And so SHARE is able to house someone for $10,000 a year, and that includes their services. When you look at the permanent supportive housing model that I just told you about, which is about $900,000 just to build the real estate portion, you also need to provide them annual services. And so we're talking about thirty-five dollars to $45,000 a year just in services like mentoring, counseling, all of that. SHARE is able to do both the real estate and the services for about $10,000 annually. So it's highly effective, it's low cost, and yet the city refuses to go that model. I have to say, I'm still <laughs> scratching my head here. I mean, they're actually actively spending, let's say, $500,000 to a million dollars for a single residence without any expectation of someone actually helping themselves to get out of the drug habit, for example. Is that what you're telling me? That's because the federal policy is just housing first. Um, it's housing first, questions later. It's very naive. They just think, give somebody a house and, you know, we won't have to deal with it. The policies that are set forth, all they do is guarantee that people who are living on our streets are going to die on our streets. The people making these policies, they have no idea. They don't understand this population. They think that it can all be solved with a house or a home. It's not true. And so what we're finding is that these elected officials just, they don't really understand the situation at all. We're the ones that understand it because we actually live with these people on our streets. And so, you know, ask us, talk to us. We can tell you what's really going on in our communities. You told me something really interesting that captured my imagination. You said that, you know, in a situation where the people kind of creating housing are doing it for profit, that actually creates a lot more accountability than people who are doing it in a nonprofit context. When I was working in finance in New York, when I was underwriting projects, at the time it was mostly for-profit developers. And that's because they're really the ones who did it right because their bottom line is just their net revenues. So they have to keep costs down. They're trying to you know, pick the, the lowest cost subcontractors. And so they are incentivized to keep costs down. What I've seen happen is the emergence of the nonprofit developer where they don't have any incentive to keep costs down and they're really boosting their basis and the way that they think about it is they're getting paid you know a 10 percent developer fee so would you rather make 10 percent on 10 million dollars or 10 percent on 100 million dollars probably the 100 million dollars i'd say well now you're thinking like a developer so for many of them, they don't care what the cost is. They just want to make the most money, and so they need to boost their basis, and they're going to make 10% of that $100 million. So I, I find this nonprofit developer model really fascinating. You had also told me that you see this as a kind of a battle between socialism and capitalism. So how does that work? So there's many groups out there. They're activist groups. Um, these are people who shout us down at community meetings. 
They call us NIMBYs, they call us segregationists, racists, and these activist groups, they're funded largely by the Democratic Socialists of America. This is the DSA, they have an LA chapter. They're very well organized. They also fight elected officials who call for law and order. And for them, this is really a question of socialism. That's what they are perpetuating. And how better to make the case that capitalism has failed than to have a bunch of homeless people living on our streets. And for them, that is their end goal, to see collective ownership. They do not believe in private property. And so they are using the homeless as really a prop to make their case. They don't want to see the homeless go into housing to get off drugs and go back and live their lives. Because if that happened, they would have to admit that capitalism works. So they don't want these people to get better. They are using them to make the case for socialism, to show a failed state. They're advocating for bigger government. So these people just, they're using them like pawns in their game. So, you know, the, the cause is always the revolution, this mm -hmm. sort of idea. The ends to them will justify the means. Our team reached out to the Democratic Socialists of America's LA chapter, but we did not immediately receive a response. You know, and there's this other, you know, we, we were, we saw one woman on the street today who really looked like, you know, she could be being trafficked or was a sex worker or something. How common is this whole element in, the, in these communities, in these homeless communities? It's very sad. It's something that is not really talked about much. Um, but homeless women, they are the most vulnerable. They're the most likely to get raped. They're living on the streets. But what also happens is that they end up trafficking themselves. They do sex work in exchange for drugs. And that's because the drugs are just so addictive. You know, that's what they do not have free will and they will do anything to keep continuing their addiction. It's just this ongoing cycle of violence and pain and suffering. And, you know, what you saw today, that's very common. Um, homeless women will you know, they will exchange their bodies to continue um, the path of using these drugs. And it's just, it's awful to watch this. In becoming a homelessness activist, you actually have become an, I guess, an anti-drug campaigner of sorts. You were actually a libertarian mm -hmm. previously. So tell me a, a little bit about how that evolved. Mm -hmm. So I am a libertarian, um, and like most, I used to believe in the full legalization of all drugs. I guess I sort of lived in a bubble and I just thought as long as you're not hurting anyone else, you know, who cares if you do drugs? I also thought the same for legalizing prostitution. Um, but what I've seen in Venice, it's made me question everything. Um, because I've seen people just addicted to these hard drugs. And when I see them, I realize that they don't have any free will. And so it's really made me question everything that I thought I believed in when it came to legalization. Uh, when people use meth and heroin, it's just, they're not able to make decisions for themselves. And it's just something that I realized that I was wrong about. You know, so walking on the streets with you today, um, you know, there's a lot of debris. Um, there's a lot of, I don't know, potential fire hazards, certainly a ton of stuff that's not according to code um, or anything resembling that, at least to my eye. Um, you know, you had like parts of RVs basically jetting out into the road. We have a lot of public safety issues, uh, but one is fires. They've really emerged as one of the worst conditions here in Venice. Uh, the LA Times did an article recently and it showed that 54% of all LAFD responses for fires are homeless related. 
We have about 24 homeless fires a day in Los Angeles. Uh, recently at the Bologna wetlands, there was a fire where 54 firefighters were needed and it burned five acres. It's incredible. And as you saw today, many of the homes in Venice are old wooden homes. Um, I myself live in a hundred year old duplex. And my worst fear is that, you know, a fire could take out the entire neighborhood. In January, we had a fire start on the Venice boardwalk. It burnt down a two-story commercial building. The building was valued at $26 million. The property owner is suing the city. The city is at fault, but at the end of the day, it's the taxpayers that are gonna pay for this. So what we keep seeing is that lives are endangered, property destroyed, and no one is going to take any action. So when we were walking today, you may have noticed on the RVs, uh, these hoses attached to them. And that's how the RVs are dumping their sewer. They're dumping directly into our storm drains. And unlike our neighbor, Santa Monica, Los Angeles does not have an urban runoff recycling program. So everything that you saw today, the needles, the trash, the debris, mass, and even people's sewage from the RVs, it all goes into our storm drains and it pumps directly out into the Pacific Ocean. So we actually have raw sewage pumping out into the ocean. We've seen many needles on the sand, especially after a big rain. What happens is it goes into the storm drains and it's washed out. Um, there was a time where we counted 15 needles because our storm drain on Rose Avenue empties directly onto the sand. It's, I, I didn't realize that it was this bad until about a year ago. I will never run barefoot on the beach again. I used to love doing that until I went to go do some due diligence for myself and saw the 15 needles there. I'm horrified now. I can't believe that I even lived here for so long and I didn't know that was happening. So one of the places that we walked by, it seemed you know intended to be a kind of solution to uh, I guess the, the issue of too many people out on the street is this bridge housing uh, project on, near in Main Street. So tell me about that. In 2018, Mayor Garcetti and Councilmember Bonin came to Venice and they pitched us bridge housing. They told us that with opening this 154 bed shelter, that we would be able to break up the encampments. We were promised a special enforcement zone where we would have additional cleaning and we would have extra security. We would have a special LAPD detail car specifically for that area. So in theory, it was great because if we accepted this program, we would get extra cleaning and extra security. It turns out that we got the complete opposite of that. During uh, the defund the police cuts, they took away that detail car. So we actually had even less policing. And then what you saw today, some of those pictures, the special enforcement cleaning zone, it was never enforced. And that's also due to COVID. Um, you know, COVID-19 uh, guidance, it's just allowed every elected official to just throw their hands up and you know, absolve themselves of any responsibility. And so what we saw is that the tents, you know, they started piling up right outside of bridge housing. Uh, right outside, there were about 40 different tents. And what the city ended up doing was they had to clear that encampment because there was fires there. One of my neighbor's cars was parked right there and the tent caught fire and it, it totaled his car. Uh, we saw some of the palm trees that were destroyed and burnt. So the only way for the city to basically move the tent was they had to put up a large fence and then they put in planters there. Uh, they put in you know, succulents so that people could not come back. The longer that we leave people on the streets, 
the, the greater the increase that they will die on our streets. So we need people to come inside. And when there's more tents clustered together, that increases the risk that people are using drugs. Um, it makes them more of a target because the drug dealers, that's their market. They're looking for vulnerable people. So the larger the encampment means the, you know, the greater interest a drug dealer will spend on that encampment. I also understand that this bridge housing, that there's even drug dealing happening there. There's been people who have caught it outside. Uh, we hear that it's inside as well. Gang members and drug dealers will always find a way to get to, you know, their customers. Uh, we hear this too in permanent supportive housing, that there are people who get apartments on the inside. So that is their business. They are selling to vulnerable populations. And when we put them together in big amounts, like 154 people, um, that just makes them easy prey for the drug dealers. I keep coming back to this question of interventions, right? Like, I mean, if it seems to me like this, for example, housing model or something could work if people were actually being helped to stop their addiction in this case, but if they're left unchecked, then it creates the situation that you're describing. I mean, why aren't these interventions happening? Well, if you look at bridge housing specifically, there are no requirements for going into bridge housing. You do not have to be sober. So if there's 154 people in there, let's say there's one person who really is trying to get sober, it'll never happen. Um, and that's because they'll be surrounded by people who are using. So on one hand, we're saying that we want people to come indoors and to sober up, but our policy decisions tell us otherwise. Um, there's really no chance for anyone to get sober in there. It's such a large population, and even if a few people are using, it could really trigger you. So you showed me uh, this string of RVs parked alongside the, this protected area, the Bologna wetlands. That's right, the Bologna wetlands are a state ecological reserve. Um, it is a, it's a state park. And we've seen this turn into a makeshift RV camp. There's people parked there. Um, it's really become a source of lawlessness. There's been multiple shootings there and multiple fires. Um, a recent fire there took 54 firefighters and we lost five acres of the wetlands there. It's kind of odd to think about tents and RVs that are you know, essentially illegally parked or placed as being domiciles. And there's all sorts of, you were telling me, there's all sorts of troublesome side effects from this. And this is one of the issues that the police run into, uh, where they feel like they're handcuffed. Because if they're trace, uh, chasing a perp and they go into a tent and zip the tent up, they have to treat that tent as private property, meaning they would need to get a search warrant. The police cannot enter a tent. The same is for RVs. If it's being used for a domicile purpose, it has it is have to be treated the same as a residence. Um, also, what's happening is you know RVs um, they are allowed to have guns in their RVs as long as it's kept in a safe box and it's locked away. So we just see this absurd way of policing where our police are not able to enforce any laws. They're not able to keep the residents safe. They're not able to keep the homeless safe, and it's because they're not able to do their job. They're really handcuffed. And so how has this, I mean, the sheriff been able to help in this situation? Because it's like another, in, I mean, a lot of people aren't familiar with this, but there's kind of another branch of law enforcement, right? That presumably you're, you seem to be counting on to some extent. Mm -hmm. Well, Sheriff Villanueva is the sheriff of LA County. Typically, what the sheriff does is he defers to local law enforcement. So in this case, it would be LAPD. 
Um, but what's happened now is that LAPD has been handcuffed. They're not able to do their job. And that is why he's stepping in. He does have jurisdiction. Los Angeles is within the county of LA. And for many residents, we really see Villanueva as the only one who's watching out for us, the only one who's going to demand more and just demand that you know, we're taken care of and that law and order is enforced. We keep hearing this mantra that, well, one, that it's a homelessness issue, and two, that homelessness isn't connected with increases in crime, that that's some kind of weird propaganda. What are your thoughts? Well, our council member had told us that he can't accept the idea that there's a link between crime and homelessness. Uh, what we saw was the total opposite. On the boardwalk, after the 200 tents were cleared, we saw major decreases in crime. We saw homicides drop by 100%, rape by 50%. We saw a decrease of 65% for assault with a deadly weapon. Total violent crime was down 51%. Um, even Grand Theft Auto was down 50%. So you really do see that there is a link between huge encampments and crime. So you know, we walked through Westchester Park. Um, you know, we had, we had a funny conversation there. You know, I said, can we really walk through here? <laughs> and he said, hey, this is a public park. It didn't feel, that's very interesting and telling. You know, the public spaces aren't becoming public, says public anymore or something. You really see the privatization of public space. And it also, you know, I said, yes, of course, it's a public park, of course we can go there. But then once you're standing there, you start to get a little nervous. Um, you feel like you are on someone's turf. Uh, you start getting, you know, you feel really nervous being there. You're not sure what can happen to you, if something will happen to you. And I think it's natural to fear for your safety. And it makes you not want to be in that area. And look, we were standing by, you know, the basketball courts. There are kids who used to play basketball there every day after school. They can't use that anymore. There's also a community pool that's been shut down. Apparently it's been too dangerous for people to use the pool, so they had to shut it down. It's also a library there. I mean, would you want your children to use that library? It's just, it's so dangerous that we lose our public space. Yeah, and I mean, right out the window of the library, who knows what you're gonna see, right? Yeah. It's definitely not a space where you would wanna take children. It's been a tough road for you, mm -hmm. but so what is the path forward? What is the way through this? The path forward is through leadership and there will be an opportunity, our council members up for election. I think all of this is really, we're gonna see a change in the polls. LA residents, not just in Venice, LA citywide, people are sick and tired of this. We have a mayoral campaign coming up. In 2022, it's a big election. It's a mayoral election. You're going to see people come out to vote for change. And really at the end of the day, I think we're gonna to have to rely on the elections for big change. So tell me what's next for you. Well, we've slowly been organizing. We're growing our circles. We're talking to more parents who are concerned. They're bringing their groups in. We're talking to other neighborhoods who are facing the same issues. I've recently met some people in Westchester and we're linking up now. And so our group is really growing. We're residents, everyday residents who demand accountability. We want real solutions for the homeless. We want them to be treated for mental illness and drug addiction issues. So 
we're growing in numbers and I think especially in Los Angeles, it's not just Venice Beach that sees this daily, it's everywhere now. Every part of LA is dealing with homelessness and people are starting to wake up. They're starting to see that there's corruption. They're starting to see that the homeless are being used for financial gain from some of these service providers or developers. So people are really waking up and they're starting to see that it's not just a housing issue. It's not as simple as giving someone a home. It's much deeply, much deeper rooted than that. And so I'm hopeful that people are waking up and that we'll finally be able to get something done and to see a real solution for our most vulnerable people. Well, Soledad Ursua, such a pleasure to have you on. Thank you, and thank you for coming to visit us. Our team reached out to Councilmember Mike Bonin's office, but we did not immediately receive a response.